So again, if you're, if you're using the Pew Bible or whatever, that, that is the English Standard Version, which is a good translation. This Bible that I have here is uh, the Holman or the Christian Standard. So the, again, a few words would be different, but it's pretty much the same and shouldn't be too much of a problem following along. So we'll pick it up in verse 13. Uh, and again, remember that what Paul is doing is making sure that the Gentiles know that um, uh, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Even though he has, even though he's working with the nation and working through the nation, has been kind of put on the side because of her disobedience and her failure to accomplish the things that God wanted her to accomplish. Uh, God has, uh, is working through the church and that's temporary. Uh, there's a certain period of time when that's going to go on. And then Israel uh, is going to be brought back into the center of things. So beginning in verse 13, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. Let me just pause for a moment and remind you that when you come across the word Gentiles, Gentiles can be understood in two ways. Sometimes Gentile is just someone who's not Jewish. You have Jews and Gentiles. Sometimes Gentiles is used to refer to non-believers or pagans. So usually the, the context will help us understand what its main use is. So here, uh, he's talking about them really in both senses, but primarily as, as unbelievers. But at the same time, when he says he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he's talking about the fact that he's been called by God to primarily minister to non-Jews. And it doesn't mean he ignored the Jews, but he was... Uh, uniquely qualified and equipped by God to minister to those who did not have a Jewish background or Jewish ethnicity. And so he says in verse 14, once again, if I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So again, the main point of that is uh, wanting them to understand that as he ministers to the, to the pagans or to non-Jews, his goal is for those who are ethnic Israel to become jealous because they see this large group of non-Jews who are believing in and worshiping and praying to and having their prayers answered by the God of Israel. Who's the one true God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the idea is that they would then become jealous that this group has this relationship really with, in a sense, their God. And hopefully that will spur them to begin to, once again, open up their Bibles, which would be the Old Testament, to look at what it says and, in a sense, to unite with God. So that's, really, that's, that's what he's hoping would be part of the outcome of what he's doing. And then, as we mentioned last week, he gets into a little bit of talking about the branches. Uh, and I'm not going to read through all of it, but the main idea is this, is that you have this... Um, tree and the tree is not producing fruit so you cut off the branches uh, and I, there's a thing that you do with with fruit trees that that will help it and then the idea is that you take these wild um, branches and graft them in which I guess apparently you're unable to do naturally uh, and they would bear fruit and he's just kind of using that as an illustration to get them to understand that they're not supposed to be um, there's not supposed to be a, uh, it's not a competition. There's not supposed to be tension or animosity between these two groups. And apparently there was a little bit of that in the church. And so he wants to put both groups in their place. So it's almost as if some of the Gentiles were thinking, yeah, 
We know God. God blesses us. Those of you who are Jews, you rejected him. You're out. And, of course, that's the wrong attitude. And then, of course, some of the, some of the, the Jews were basically, uh, you were just grafted in later. You were a second thought by God. We are the primary ones that God chose from the beginning. And so you're, you're lucky. And, of course, as he explains all these things, number one, God grafting in Gentiles into the body of Christ was not a last-minute decision. He, he'd always intended to do that. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. But he's just using that as an illustration to kind of get them to straighten up when it comes to their attitude towards each other. There's no room for jealousy uh, in that sense. Um, again, he wants non-believers to become jealous to motivate them to begin to search for God. So there's, there's that idea. So, and, the same, and the same principle can be applied to us, and that is we know that our salvation for all of us, for those of us who are believers in Christ, our salvation is God's gift to us no one's earned it. So there's, there's no room or there's no place for any kind of bragging. No one can ever say, you know, well, I chose God because I'm smarter than you. And there's no room for that because that's, that's not how it works. Everyone is blinded by their sin. And the Bible talks, uses a lot of different um, uh, titles or names to describe individuals who are non-believers and how sin affects us. We're blind, we're dead in our sins, uh, we're unable to respond to God, we're unable to respond to the gospel on our own. If God does not work in our hearts first, there's not going to be a response. And whoever God uses in our lives, the different events and circumstances, God is the one who opens our eyes so we will understand. He's the one that gives us the faith that we exercise to believe in him. It's all of God. And so he gets all the praise and all the glory, and that's, that, that should remind us to, in a sense, remain humble. There's no place for, for pride within Christianity. In fact, um, when you get into the book of James, uh, there's a verse in there that says that God resists the proud. And when you, when you look at the Greek verb for resist, it's a military term that's used, and it's one that's, that is emphasizing being active. In other words, so God is not just displeased when someone is proud. The idea behind that verse is that God is actively against you if you are prideful. Not about you, but I don't want to be in that position. Right? I don't want God being against me in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but God is, you know, God just, he loathes pride. Uh, I think there are certain sins that are difficult for us to commit in a singular fashion. And what I mean by that is this. If you think about this for a moment, can you name a sin you can commit without being selfish? Can anybody name one? I can't. Which means that basically whenever you sin, now you've, you're always sinning at least twice. <laughs> because you're selfish, and then you've done this. And I think pride might, might be one of those as well. I, we're not, we don't always recognize pride for what it is, because sometimes we only think of pride in the sense of being arrogant or bragging. Uh, but stubbornness can be a sign of pride. Whether you're bragging or not, just to be stubborn just, or just to be resistant uh, can be a sign of pride. Um, some people talk about, I guess they use the term uh, reverse pride. There's really no such thing, but what they're trying to get across is, so let's say that, uh, and let, let's, say we, let's say we have an individual, I have a friend of mine, he lives down in Florida, he pastors a church, 
Uh, he used to play in a very famous jazz band uh, before he became a believer. He plays the trumpet. He's really good. I mean, he's actually great. Um, and so sometimes, you know, when he, was a, when he was a jail chaplain, which is the same thing I did, he, he would like put on a little concert and he would talk about the Lord, play the trumpet, um, and, and those kinds of things. So if somebody was to come up to him and say, wow, that was great, you play the trumpet so well, if he was to say, nah, I don't play it really all that well, all right, we'd say, okay, dude, not only do you play well, you know you do, so just stop it, all right? And the idea is sometimes, uh, the reason why some people do that, because I don't know why everyone does that kind of thing, but sometimes it's because we want to hear more, right? I want to hear more of that. Uh, sometimes we just don't know how to handle a compliment. Uh, but the idea is, it's just not really reverse pride, it's still pride. It just, it just displays itself in different ways. Um, and pride is one of those sins that just, it's, it, it, it is rooted deep down in the bone. So you really have to root that out um, and be aware of that. Because it can plague us for the rest of our natural lives, uh, to say the least. So anyway, so that's all the things that Paul is trying to get to. So that's why he says, if you look at verse 25, so that you will not be conceited, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So that's the summary of everything. Don't be conceited. Number two, don't be, I, I, do, I, want you to, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery because the mysteries of the Bible are explained. The mystery is, is that God has hardened Israel, but it's a partial hardening because it's temporary. And how long will it last? Well, until the full number of Gentiles has come in, meaning the full number of Gentiles that are going to become believers become believers. I don't know what that number is. God knows what the number is. It's a big number. Um, but when that time comes, then all the different things that we read about concerning prophecy will begin to kind of go full tilt, so to speak, when that happens. It's kind of a, but it's, it's a number and a moment that's only known by God. But that's what he wants them to understand. Uh, that, that again, all these negative things that have happened between God and Israel, again, is temporary. Uh, and as we saw several weeks ago, God's gonna keep all the covenants or the promises that he's made to them. So again, verse 28, regarding the gospel, they, that's Israel, are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Patriarchs would be Isaac, Abraham, all, you know, all of the older uh, godly men from the past. Since God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so they also now may receive, may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. So all, those, all that fancy wording in there that he's gotten into basically is to remind him of this. Israel disobeyed, the Jews disobeyed, I mean the, the uh, Gentiles have disobeyed. Everyone is guilty of disobeying God. You know, in the same way that in the first part of Romans it talks about how everybody has sinned. Another way to describe that is everybody lives in disobedience to God. God wants all of us to live in a particular way. Um, some have said that the Bible is God's instruction book for Christians. Well, that's only one of its applications. This is the revelation of who God is to all men 
And this is also describes how God desires all men to live. Because some individuals will, will say this, or they think this way. They'll say, well, um, I'm, I'm praying for so-and-so, my family, because I don't want them to go to hell. And we all know that if you reject Jesus, you will go to hell. Well, that's true, but that's not completely true. And what I mean by that is, remember that when a person dies in their sins and go to, goes to hell, they go to hell for all of their sins, not just one. It's all of them. When God punishes them for their sin, he doesn't say, because you rejected Christ, I'm going to punish you for that sin. He's going to punish them for everything they've done. Absolutely everything they've done that's against God or against God's will, everything they have thought that's against God or God's will, they will be held accountable for. Uh, so all of our sins, both inward and outward, we are accountable to God. And, and again, the only escape uh, uh, for anyone is to put your faith and trust in what Christ has done. And again, remember, so God is not overlooking your sin at that point. He has punished your sin in Christ. So remember, all sin will be punished. Uh, and so who will be punished for my sin? Either I'm going to be punished for my sin, or was it Christ? And so I, because I'm a believer, I know that it was Christ. Uh, and so that's, that's the idea. But it's all disobedience. So and the reason why I bring that up is because sometimes, and I think I mentioned this before in a different way, you know, we think of the invitation that, that God gives to all men to believe and receive the gift of salvation. And that's true. But at the same time, it's also a command. Mankind is commanded to believe in God. So to not believe in God is a sin of rebellion. All right? God is real. God exists. God's revealed himself. You choose not to believe. You're disobeying God. It's just another act of rebellion. Uh, so we have to think in both those terms. Because there are many people who think that the only thing, wrong thing they've done is they've refused this invitation of God. So somehow they're kind of off the hook because they don't think of themselves as being rebellious. Or another term the Bible uses, it talks about the non-believer being someone who hates God. And there are many people who don't believe in God who think, well, I don't hate him. I just don't believe in him. And what they, what they fail to recognize is that just because you don't necessarily feel the hatred doesn't mean you don't hate. Uh, hate is, in our language, a very strong word. Um, but, that, but that's God's description of the individual who refuses to believe. To believe. He says that's hatred. Um, and uh, God is never wrong on those things. So remember that our feelings sometimes can mislead us. Uh, so on one hand, your feelings may not be wrong in the sense that you are feeling them, but your feelings may be completely wrong because they're sending the wrong message to you. Because our feelings tend to be very self-centered. Um, and we tend to live by our feelings, which, which is going to get you in trouble. So feelings are good. Feelings have their place in your life. Don't make decisions based on your feelings. Uh, if you go to buy a new car, that car salesman is hoping you'll make a decision based on your feelings. Right? You may have in your mind a budget. He doesn't care about your budget. He just wants you to sign that dotted line. So he can get paid. Well, of course, absolutely. There is a motive, always. Uh, but we have to understand, it's just important for us to understand that. So then uh, we have what's called a hymn of praise um, that uh, Paul closes chapter 11 with. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So again, this, this, this short little hymn here that Paul closes with is just uh, closing with this accurate description of God and, and the separation between us and God. When he, when, when he mentions the depths of the riches of God, that means that when it comes to the, the ways of God and the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, it's such a deep subject, no one can search it exhaustively. That's, that's impossible. Number two, uh, his judgments, the way that God judges, uh, his, his justice, his holiness, it's unsearchable in the sense that a human being, being able to search it out to the end to have full understanding, it's beyond us because God is infinite and we're finite. Untraceable are his ways simply means that we are unable to follow all that God does and keep track of it all because it's just beyond us. Um, and then he asked this, this question where it's a rhetorical question where the answer is assumed to be no, no or no one. So he says, who has known the mind of God, the mind of the Lord, meaning who has comprehensive understanding of God's mind? That would be no one. Uh, or who has been his counselor? In other words, who did God ever go to for advice? That would be no one. Um, who was ever first given to him and has to, uh, and has to be repaid? Well, that's no one. Remember, God is the one who gives to us first because in the very beginning, that's where your life came from. So your life began with God giving you the gift of life, human life. Um, and so God owes us nothing. Uh, and then, of course, he closes it up by saying that everything is from him, it is through him, and it is to him or for him. And so he's the one that should receive the glory. So when he finishes that, in chapter 12, he begins by saying, therefore. And normally, whenever you come across the word therefore, all that means is, is that what he's about to get into now is based on what he's been talking about. And that you see that throughout all the Bible. Whenever you come across the word therefore, that's just that's what that means. Um, and so he says, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So many of the individuals, both Jews and Gentiles, understood what a sacrifice was. All right, when you sacrifice an animal, uh, you are taking its life. So the sacrifice is complete in every way. Um, you know the joke about the chicken and the pig? And uh, the chicken and the pig are having a discussion. And they say, uh, and the chicken says that um, uh, when the farmer comes, uh, I'm going to give him an egg for breakfast. And uh, says to the pig, what are you going to give? And then someone else answers with the pig and says, well, the pig's going to give it all. <laughs> and so the idea is, is that you're not, it's not just a portion thing. It's, it's all or nothing. But the idea is a living sacrifice, which in other words, what God wants is you, the individual. Uh, as a living sacrifice. Um, and that is holy or set apart, pleasing to God. When he says this is your spiritual worship, that does not mean that this is only something that you feel, in a sense, spiritually. All right? It's your spiritual worship, but this worship to God involves the whole person, body, mind, and soul. So we don't want to somehow take the word spiritual as only being some kind of a mystical thing. Right? It's very much connected to every aspect of life, um, is what he's talking about. So he's going to explain how, we're, how are we going to be able to do that. How am I going to be able to present my body 
How am I going to present my whole person to God to serve God uh, in a way that is acceptable to God? And so he begins with a negative in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age. So being conformed to this age, whatever age you're living in, the assumption with the verse is the age that you're living in is going to be described as one that is trying to find a way to make sense of life and live life apart from who God is. That's what we live in a culture right now that's trying to do that. In various ways, you do not see, uh, for example, our government is not encouraging people to follow the God of the Bible. They're, they're, when the coronavirus began, uh, and everybody was freaking out, which some still are, but when they're freaking out about that, there's certain subtle differences between now and maybe, let's say, 40 years ago. Not saying that 40 years ago everything was perfect, because it's not. But many politicians would not have hesitated 40 years ago or 50 years ago to say in public, on TV or on radio, that's all they had, because there were no podcasts back then. Right. Uh, but what they would not be afraid to do is to say, this is beyond us, and we need to pray to God to help us and to be merciful. We well, don't hardly ever hear that from anyone that. anymore, because they don't want to invoke religion right. for all kind of ways, for all kind of reasons. It doesn't matter. That's just where it's at. All right, but there's a belief. The belief is, and it's, it's, this is kind of a, I guess you would call it the spirit of the age, and it's been around for a long time. There's a belief and a desire that humanity on its own is going to be able to resolve its own problems. That's what many people want. If you listen carefully to speeches that are given, you will hear certain phrases or uh, certain things being focused on, and that is what comes out. Not only because there's a glaring absence of talk about God, having faith in God and believing in God, but the elevation of man's abilities. Now, we have a lot of great abilities. Of course, we were created by God to have those. Um, now, I, I haven't, uh, a, 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 well, I guess you could do it with both. Whether you listen to Trump or you listen to President Obama, both of them do the same thing in, the, in different ways. But there's no invoking of God. Not really. It's... The word we normally refers to either we, the American people, or we as in mankind. And there's this emphasis that man is great, man has made great discoveries, man will continue to make great discoveries, and we will solve our problems really without religion. Whether it's poverty, war, disease, we're going to do this. And that's been the emphasis for a long time. Uh, so again, he's telling us here, is that, we, that it's important for us to live carefully, that we're not conformed to the world. Being conformed to the world happens really very simply. All, right? all of us are exposed to the philosophy of the world every day. If you listen to the news, if you listen to any kind of music that's secular, I'm not saying it's bad to listen to secular music, but there's an influence that's there. All right? There's always an influence. There's, there's, you know, all songs have lyrics and there's a point some of it may be just random but there's a point to it and when you watch tv whether you're watching the news or you're watching a sitcom or you're watching a drama there are many points they're trying to make uh throughout all of that if you read the newspaper you read magazines or you read articles on the internet there's the same idea to continue to perpetuate what we might call just a secular age simply meaning 
an age where God is absent. They give lip service and say, well, you can believe whatever you want to believe. No harm, no foul. Keep it to yourself. But this is how we're going to pursue. And there's this idea that's out there that if you are diligent and energetic about what you believe and you want to engage others in conversation because maybe you want to convince them of what you believe to be true, that's frowned upon. They don't want you to do that. Um, especially Christians. They don't want Christians to do that, big time. Uh, I think the reason is, is because uh, uh, many know that it doesn't go well for those who want to stay connected to or they want to be ruled by a secular kind of philosophy because when you look at what the scripture says logically and you listen to the logic of what God says, um, it tends to be pretty overwhelming that God exists, um, you're not God, we need God, and that's how things have to go forward. So they don't want that. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but back in the, again, not so much the 60s, it didn't really start uh, until the 70s, but this, there was a particular kind of event that took place in the 70s and 80s that was actually almost common among college campuses, and that's where a, a Christian uh, would show up, sometimes by invitation, sometimes just on his own, and he would challenge students to debate them, or professors to debate them. Does God exist? Uh, is God real? Uh, any question you want. And they would debate, or they, they might debate uh, which is true. Is it Islam or is it Christianity? Is it Mormonism or is it Christianity? And these guys would go and they would have these debates. Or is evolution true or is creation true? And all these debates used to take place uh, on all these different college campuses, a lot of them in the 70s, a little less in the 80s, and began to die out in the 90s. And the main reason they began to die out in the 90s is the college campuses no longer wanted these Christians to come on campus to do these debates. Now, I think the main reason is, is because they weren't doing too well. More and more college professors did not want to debate these Christians because they looked foolish, and they knew that. Whether they were a scientist or a philosopher, it just didn't go well. And so, uh, and students were becoming convinced that Christianity was true or maybe to look at Christianity. And so now it's almost unheard of. It still happens a little bit, but not, not like it used to. And there's reasons for that. Um, so again, the idea is, is for us to kind of be on our guard. And the way that you make sure you're not conformed to the world is obviously we can't leave the world. We're, we're part of the world. We live in the world. All right? And even if you turn off your TV and turn off your radio and everything else, you, there's just being around people and the way they live, and the way they think, and the way you interact with them, there's always this influence. We're always influencing each other, whether it's to a large degree or to a small degree. It's always happening. So the way that we make sure that we're not conformed to the world is that we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be around believers. It doesn't mean to be around believers exclusively. It doesn't mean that the only book you read is the Bible. I mean, I read a lot of different books. I don't just read the Bible. Uh, but that's my, that's my go-to book. Uh, I compare everything else I read to what does the Bible say, because I know the Bible is true. Uh, and that's what he says in the next phrase. So don't be conformed to the world. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that's how our minds are renewed. We talked about way months and months and months ago, when we talked about Romans chapter 1, 
What we mentioned was that when it describes how sin affects people, there's two things to remember. Number one, sin affects us as far as what we think. So we think in terms of evil. Right? Everybody is guilty of being evil. Right? Hopefully, if you're a believer, you're less evil than you were. Uh, but the idea is, is that uh, we, we think about things that are, are wrong, whether it's revenge against somebody who slighted us, uh, maybe it's just cruelty, maybe it's, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, there's this, this idea that uh, we think in ways that are not righteous. But there's another aspect of how sin's affected us that people aren't always thinking about, and that is the way we think has been affected by sin. I think it's becoming more clear today, more than ever, and that is where you see, uh, just in general, a moving away from thinking logically and thinking rationally. I believe thinking logically is thinking the way God designed us to think. That's how God thinks. He thinks logically. I mean, who's going to say, oh yeah, God thinks in illogical ways? That wouldn't make any sense. All right? That's like saying that God believes 2 plus 2 is 5. Okay, that he would be wrong. Right? But he doesn't think that way. So what we have is, and that's why I do believe, just kind of in general, if you look at uh, the history of man and the history of governments, often there have been two groups that when governments have pursued certain groups to get rid of or to exterminate, those groups have always been either Jews or Christians. They have in common is their main book is the Bible. And groups where their main book is the Bible tend to be groups who think in terms of absolutes. There's right, there's wrong, there's logic, there's uh, rational thought. We need to reason things through, we need to think it through. Uh, if you ever read a book, it can be kind of boring, but if you ever read a book on where does science come from? Who develops science? If you go back in history, you're going to find it's pretty much all Christians. And, and the reason and the belief was God is a logical, reasonable, rational being. He has created a logical, reasonable, rational universe. So therefore, the universe can be studied. And so we've done amazing things with that. I mean, we're almost, you know, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer to being able to predict earthquakes. We're getting closer to being able to predict I mean, I know that the, what they call the spaghetti models of hurricanes is usually pretty way off, but they're getting better at being able to figure out where a hurricane's going to go. And so there's early warning systems. We've developed early warning systems for tornadoes because we recognize weather patterns. It's the same. All right? If tornadoes just appeared out of nowhere randomly, I don't know about you, but if there's a place called Tornado Alley and we can't even figure out when tornadoes are coming, I'm not living there. Well, you know, I think right? this is Tornado Alley. I know. But the point is, is that we've been able to figure all these things out because God's universe, you know, when we, when we talk about like the law of gravity, it's not an independent law that's just out there floating around. We, we use the word the law of gravity to explain basically how gravity works. And it works the same all the time. God did that. Right? So, so the father of science has always been Christians. Now, Christians aren't the only ones who, who take advantage of it, and Christians aren't the only ones who are scientists. But even those, all of your best scientists have at least have adopted what we would call a biblical view of the world. 
and a biblical view of how things work. All right, so it's always been that way. So the reading of the Bible really then is very important for us spiritually, and it's important for us intellectually. It, it, it will bless your life. It blesses the lives of individuals uh, and families and communities and nations that follow what it says. Um, uh, I know I've mentioned this a few times before, but there's a, an, an Indian from India who is a believer, and he's written a book where he talks about, just in a general sense, how the Bible has this really heavy influence on the country of India. Now, India's gotten away from that, uh, and they reverted back to it, so they've got a lot of problems. But he talked about how there were certain huge social and cultural changes in India for several decades, and it, and it was just because of the influence of the Bible. It wasn't because of a massive number of people becoming Christians, though some did, but just the effect of the Bible. Um, I, think it was, I think it was James D. Kennedy, he used to be a pastor, he's dead now, but he used to be a pastor of a church in Pensacola, Florida. And he wrote a book, I can't remember the title, sorry, but anyway, he, he wrote a book, and basically what he does is he's, he asks a couple of questions. And so the question would be like this. So who was it that came with an idea to build hospitals? Who did that? In history, it was Christians. There wasn't anyone else. It was Christians. Who came with the idea to build orphanages to take care of unwanted children? It was, it was Christians. It wasn't non-Christians. Whose idea was it to have schools? Uh, that would be Christians. It always comes back to that, continuously. Um, and so he goes through all these major institutions and says basically that's the influence of Christianity. It's the influence of the Bible on the world. You, you get rid of that and you have problems. And, and you can see these problems in history because there are certain places where there's not been that influence. I remember um, there's a book I read. It's called 1421. And I just thought it was interesting. It's a secular book. The guy that wrote the book 1421, he used to be a a captain of a submarine uh, for the Brits. And he was really big into ancient maps and history and different things. So 1421 is a book he wrote about the country of China. And there was a period of time in the 1400s where China appeared to be, culturally speaking, meaning when it came to science and math, about 300 years ahead of the rest of the world. It was unbelievable. The best maps were all Chinese maps. If you look at the old maps that were, that were drawn by the Portuguese and the Spanish and even, even uh, um, uh, some other European countries, the, the, the topography of islands and places was always off. It was skewed. They were very inaccurate. The most accurate maps were always the Chinese. And, when they, and this one guy, he found, he was in early in the maps, and he found a couple of maps that were of Spanish origin that were incredibly accurate. And he's like, this is unusual. And he found out that they had come across maps from the Chinese. Uh, he also said that when it came to boat building, Chinese were 300 years ahead. The Chinese were able to build boats that could sail through a hurricane. The English had all kinds of ships. Go through a hurricane, not too many ships left over because they're wiped out. But the the, the Chinese had developed boats that could, that could withstand that. The Chinese also had the first um, floating library. It was, a, it was a, a large container ship, basically. It was made out of wood. Uh, but it had over 20,000 books on it. The Chinese, when they would go and explore the world, 
they could, they could, they would send a team on to maybe some land they didn't know about, and they could look at the plants, and they could tell you what was under the ground. They could look at plants and say, if, uh, in this country, they're rich in iron. It's not because they dug for it. They could, they could identify plants knowing that's where those kinds of plants, I mean, their knowledge was incredible. Um, and, and also, they've proven now, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the very first individuals to be able to sail successfully around the world, it was the Chinese. But something happened in 1421. That's why the book's called that. In 1421, the emperor of China, because he had grand plans for himself, wanted to build this humongous palace for himself, and he began to enslave his own people. And, to get, and many hundreds of Chinese died working on these construction projects that this man had for his, for his buildings and his palace and all this kind of stuff. It was all, and all, you know, it was all made out of wood and, and bamboo. And in 1421, there was this massive storm <coughs> and a bolt of lightning hit one of the buildings. It caught on fire. This emperor had uh, what, in this one, one house that got, that, that got caught on fire, it housed the 300 wives that he had. They all burned to death. Um, the entire palace area was destroyed by fire. And so the people responded. They got very angry. They were already upset with the, with the emperor, but they got very angry. And they said, the gods are angry because you have done this to our people. You've built this palace for yourself, and there's too much contact with foreigners. Well, he didn't want to be thrown, overthrown, so he put out an edict to call, because their navy had gone throughout the world, to bring everybody back. And what he did was, as the ships kept coming back in, they would come in the harbor, they would unload whatever they had, and then he would burn the boats. And he burned the entire navy and sank it to the bottom of, of the bay. Which is, and, but all of that is, a, is basically a reaction from superstition. You know, there's a bolt of lightning, and their gods are angry, and here's this irrational decision that's made by this guy, uh, and the people were pleased with it, and this country, which was at one time 300 years ahead of the rest of the world, began to fall behind. So much so that by the 1940s, China was famous for having the highest number of opium addicts. The people had, there was, there was no new information coming into the country. There was no new development of anything. They, they, they didn't continue to advance in science. They, everything, they went backwards in every way. And uh, as a result, um, that, that, that allowed things to get to the point to where Mao Zedong, communist, came to power. And uh, he uh, developed what, it's a tongue-in-cheek term, but he developed what some people can, uh, believe was the uh, most successful drug rehabilitation program on a national level. And what he did was he sent his army into villages. They'll find a couple of opium addicts. They bring them to the center of the town, call out to the people, and say, you get to use these drugs, this is what will happen. And they executed them. And then the next village did the same thing. And pretty soon, very few opium addicts were left. Uh, people just, they decided to stop using it. 
uh, and uh, and of course they've there's there's all kinds of issues there, but you know that's the influence or the lack of influence of the Bible and Christians in these in these countries. Uh, so it's just a phenomenal topic. It's a very big topic, kind of hard to get your arms around, uh, but you see this influence. So again, so back to back to then the verse that commands us as Christians. God wants our minds to be transformed. So the normal way of thinking in our country is a secular worldview that needs to be changed. Not only the way we think, but also what we think about. We need to start thinking in terms of absolutes. There is a right and there is a wrong, and it's based on the scripture, based on the Bible. Uh, modern day example. So when the abortion issue first came up in the 1970s, um, the, those who argue for women to have the right for abortion, which is just another way of killing a baby, because that's what that is. There's no way to get around it. That's what's happening. All right? but, but the arguments to defend abortion has changed through the years as science has advanced. The view for the Christian has always been the same. In the Bible, it declares that life, human life, begins at conception. It's always been the view. The view has always been that every single human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, all human life is valuable. It's not based on your race. It's not based on your income. It's not based on your education. Every single human life, even if that human being is deformed. You know, if you have a, a, a child with Down syndrome, that's, that's because of the curse of sin, and that's unfortunate, but that child made an image of God. Uh, you have any other, other kind of handicaps? Every single life then is precious. That's a Christian view of things. All right? So the argument then, which has always been, well, it's a woman's right to choose, blah, 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 blah. And you can go through all that, but in the end, name one other scenario where you have a right to choose that if somebody inconveniences your life, you have the right to kill them. Okay, that, that doesn't exist, but it exists with this. So what they did was, and the, and the ones who defend abortion were very, actually very smart. They began to change the words for the debate. And the first thing they had to get rid of is the word baby. So what do they tell you? We abort fetuses. They don't abort babies, they abort fetuses. That was a very, was a very important psychological, sociological move on their part because they were trying to eliminate from the minds of most people that this is a human being. And they've been primarily successful at doing that. But they still right. kill babies. Well, of course, absolutely. Yeah. The, the ones, those of us who accept what the Bible says, we know that to be true. All right? So that's the idea. What, what is, I think, even worse, to a degree, because it's all bad. But there's only three countries in the world that will abort a baby in the last three months of a woman's pregnancy. Only three countries in the world that would do that. We're one of them. The other one's North Korea, which is one of the most barbaric nations on the planet. I can't remember what the third one is, but it doesn't matter. It's not good company. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just incredible the way that that goes. Huh? It's probably China. Uh, no, uh, I, I, don't even think, I don't even think they were that bad, but they, it might be them. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, the idea is that for, is we, we want to make sure we base everything on Scripture. So... When someone's presented, because this is the people try to use this argument. So when someone's presented a moral dilemma, so we'll take one that I think is easy, but just so we can understand how an individual can move away from the Bible and that we're commanded not to do that. So what takes place is a, a woman is, is raped, which is a 
horrible situation. She gets pregnant, and so people will say, ah, you can't force that woman to deliver a baby. Well, first of all, no one's forcing anyone to do anything, but it was always the norm. That's exactly what would happen. She would carry the baby to full term. And so the argument, so how does a Christian figure that out? Well, number one, there are absolutes given in Scripture. No matter how the baby was conceived, it's a human life made in the image of God. It's very unfortunate that it happened that way, absolutely, but you don't violate what God has said. Now, if you believe in God, we believe that God, because he does this, it would be in a supernatural way, would give his grace and strength to that woman that she carries that baby to full term. She will love that child because people would say that baby's only going to remind them of the rape every day. Many, 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 many women have delivered children and kept the child from a rape, and they never once say that happens. They never look at their kid and think of the rape. Right. It doesn't happen. It's, it's, in fact, what's, what they won't tell you is that there's been this problem in our country when it comes to the abortion issue for about, well, since it began in the 70s, and that is women who have abortions normally anywhere between three weeks to up to a year from the abortion suffer more depression than anyone else. And it normally centers around one of two dates. Either the original due date that the baby should have been born on, or it was the date that they got the abortion. And they keep trying to find ways to A, keep that from people, but then try to find ways to help them to deal with it. And the most ridiculous thing I ever heard, if you think about it logically, it becomes ridiculous, is a woman would have an abortion so while she's in the waiting room, they would, and I don't know if they did this all over the place, but they, I know they did this in several cities uh, up north. They would tell the women to write a letter to their unborn baby. Now, first of all, that makes no sense. You should be writing a letter to an unborn fetus, but then why would you write a letter to a fetus? But this is just a psychological exercise. And the idea was, is for this woman to write this letter to this baby explaining why She's getting the abortion. You know, I, I won't be able to take care of you. I don't want you to be born in an abusive situation. All the kind of normal arguments they use. And that was supposed to be therapeutic. I mean, and it is, for many, therapeutic for them. And that's done, though, in advance as a precursor to help them deal with what may come, which is this depression. Now, it's not very successful, but they would never tell the women that was why they did it. And we know that because we've interviewed hundreds of women who've been involved in that exercise. So they know this problem exists. They know that it defies logic, and it actually defies science. And that's why in most states, again, we all know what happens. If you are a drunk driver and you hit a car uh, of a woman who's pregnant, even if she's on her way to, the, to an abortion center, if she dies and the baby dies, it's two counts of murder. Why would they do that if it's just a fetus? There's this inconsistency. And just so you know, there are many trying to get those laws changed so that Man, no one can ever be charged with two counts of murder just because a woman loses her baby. It's just, it just defies logic. And there's, we could go through literally thousands of examples in many areas of life where that takes place. When you move away from the absolutes of the Bible, it doesn't mean that life becomes easy. Life is hard. And there are many difficult things we have to deal with. And, for example, a woman getting raped is a horrendous thing. No one would ever pretend that that's just not a big deal. It's a huge deal. But do we believe in the supernatural power of God or not? Does God have the ability to
to heal. I know he does. In fact, one of the most amazing, there's many amazing stories. But there was this uh, uh, couple, there was a, a husband and wife, they were missionaries in India, and they had, uh, I, think, I think they had two sons. And there was a huge battle in, uh, during this year, it was in the 90s, during that year, uh, between the, the Hindus and the Muslims uh, there in this one region. And it was a lot of killing, a lot of riots, a lot of problems. And so this woman, her, her husband and her son, had, I think, gone to the market to do whatever, and they were captured by a gang, and I don't know if it was a Hindu gang or a Muslim gang, it doesn't matter, but they were captured, they were able to escape, they ran, they hid, hid in some kind of bus they found, uh, the group that chased them surrounded them in this bus, and then basically set it on a fire and killed them, and they, all, and they burned to death. So the lady, about maybe a year later, came out in public, and said so that as a Christian, she knew she had to forgive those people for what they did. The nation, they were blown away. So blown away by that, that I, I think they declared some kind of a, I have to go back and look it up again, some kind of a national holiday, and gave her a special award, the kind of award they would give like to Mahatma Gandhi and some of those individuals because of what she did. I mean, because they, in their religions, there's no place for that. And they saw that as the most honorable thing you could do. So how does a person do that, genuinely do that? I, I think it's the, the power of God to do that, to, to be transformed where you can genuinely forgive. Because, I mean, that's pretty hard to do. Because, you know, when you, when you have a, when your husband and your son die that way, human nature is your, your mind automatically goes to what would the, the last few moments of your husband's and son's life been like, right? Suffering in that kind of fire? You can't, it's, it's a nightmare. You can't get away from it. It's, it's going to make you both angry and there's a tremendous amount of grief, the whole thing. How do you handle that and move on? Well, that's, that's how you do that. And there's countless stories like that. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. That's the most atrocious things. So when, when Paul then tells these individuals, because remember we've said this before, that in all the religions that were around at the time of Paul, the religions, they, there was no such thing as religions that, were, that would instruct people on how to live day to day. Their gods, they believed in, didn't get involved in that. It was always trying just to appease their god or get their god, trick their god into blessing them. But this idea that husbands should treat their wives in a particular way and the wives should treat the husband in a particular way and that they, were, that they were equal in the eyes of God and they should both be treated with honor. In the Roman society, that, they didn't think about women that way and these people were blown away by, by this teaching. And then the idea that even if an individual is a slave or those who are free, that they're made in the image of God and that, they, and that salvation is offered to both. In fact, what some people don't always realize is that it was not uncommon that in, in Rome during those times, there were some churches that were pastored by slaves, and that slave's owner was a member of his church. I mean, how do you, how do you put all that together? Of course, back in Rome, they also had slaves who owned slaves. It's very different than the kind of slavery they had here in America. But, uh, but the idea is, is that there was this religion that was just so viewed so, so differently because of the effects it had on individuals and people in society. And so that's the power of God, that's the power of the scripture, 
And so for you and I, the way that you and I are going to be able to overcome all the various things that life throws at us in the culture we live in is to follow the simple commands. It's hard, but follow the simple commands of number one, be aware of the world and don't be conformed to the way the world thinks. Think critically, which means not, it doesn't mean to think negatively, it means to analyze it. Well, what do you use to analyze it with? Well, the truth, that would be the Bible. Allow God and the Word of God to transform your mind to think in the way that the Bible describes. And when, as that takes place, you are pleasing God. Uh, that is, I don't want to say that's a secret to a life of contentment, because it's not a secret, but that is the path uh, to contentment. So we'll stop there, and then we'll continue to uh, uh, deal with verses 3 and, and on as God talks about how we're going to be able to. How is it then that we can make sure that we are transformed by our minds and how we're going to make sure that we're not conformed? Because he doesn't just leave us by ourselves. There are many things that God gives to us as individuals and as a group to try to ensure that will happen and to make it better for us and easier for us to be able to live in a way that, that honors the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for your kindness and grace and love, and we just thank you, Lord, for the word and for the strength of the word, for the wisdom of the word, for the, for the righteousness of the word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to look at our lives, to look at every facet of life in light of the truth of Scripture. Uh, we know, Lord, that the Bible uh, never pretends that life is easy or doesn't have any tragedy, uh, but there's truth contained in the pages of Scripture. It is truth, and we can live by it, we can count on it, and our lives will be transformed by Christ if we come to you. So we pray, Lord, that you will uh, bless us as we read your word, as we think about your word, as we study your word, and as we live your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be with each one that's here tonight and keep them safe as they travel home, that you would watch over each and every one of us, and that you would cause us, Father, to think often about your word and the truth, and that we would find peace and contentment in life, and we would find this through Christ. So we're grateful, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.